All right. Well, this morning we are continuing in our five-part series on the book of Esther. This is part three. Um, it, you may remember that in the first uh, sermon two weeks ago, we talked about how God is in control. Amen. And uh, we saw how uh, even though the world seemed like it was spinning out of control uh, and Vashti is deposed and all of that, in the midst of all of that, God is in control. And then last week we saw that God is way ahead of the game. Things don't surprise him. It looked like all this stuff was happening and that was surprising, but uh, God is way ahead of the game. And we saw God's fingerprints in three situations in last week's message and uh, how they chose a new queen and in the unlikely choosing of Esther to be queen and also in the uncovering of a plot to assassinate the, the, the king by Mordecai. And so today we're going to pick up that story in chapter 3. We're calling this message Conspiracy, Confusion, and Confidence. Conspiracy, Confusion, and Confidence. Would you bow in prayer with me over the Word of God? God, thank you for your eternal Word. It's a light to our feet, a lamp to our path. God, strengthen us by your Word, God, this morning for us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Now, um... Many of you may have noticed uh, on our Facebook page, or we made some announcements, or in a weekly email, that I promise that this message is going to be an interactive audience participation message. And it is, all right? Didn't you get that message? Oh, a few of you. Okay, right. Okay, this is an audience participation message. And I've really never done this before, so it's going to be kind of new, but I think it's going to be fun and exciting. So here's the idea, right? The Feast of Purim that we study in this book it's established, and it was, it was in the book of Esther, but it's still celebrated today by religious Jews all over the world. And, um, and wouldn't you celebrate it? I mean, think about it. If you were a Jew today, and Haman had had his way, you wouldn't be alive. All right, so sure, you would celebrate it. And so what you may not know is that during this celebration, they read the story of Esther aloud. And when they do, every time they come to the name of Haman, because it says in the book of Esther that Haman's name is blotted out, it says that they, um, when they come to Haman's name, they make a lot of noise by stamping their feet and booing and hissing and, doing, and yelling and doing all that type of stuff whenever his name is mentioned. And I thought to myself, well, well, that's like fun. So I thought we'd try that today. Every time Haman's name is mentioned, I want you to kind of boo and yell, stomp your feet, make a lot of noise for like three to four seconds, all right? And then stop, all right? Are you, are you with me? All right, let's try it on this first verse. All right, you want to put that up there? It says, after these events, King Xerxes honored Haman. All right, good. Let's try that again. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman eggs. All right, I won't, I won't, that's my last time with that, okay? I feel like I should be escorted out of the room now for that bed. Okay. One more time. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman. All right, so we will try that and, uh, and, and see how that goes. All right, and so um, I do want it to be noted, by the way. I think, I think I'm the first pastor in history who's ever given his congregation permission to boo during a sermon. All right, and I want credit for that. Someone should call the Guinness Book of World Records or something. All right? Okay, so here we go. Beginning to look at the story, Esther chapter 3, come to this conspiracy how many of you know that there are, there, there are people who conspire to do bad things sometimes, right? I mean, sometimes it's small things, sometimes it's really big things, and, and there's this conspiracy here 
in these first several verses. Chapter 3, verse 1, it says, After these events, that is probably now four to five years after Esther has been made queen, it says, After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. Now, who is this Haman guy? Right. All of a sudden, we have this new guy introduced that we've never heard of before. And he's not one of those advisors that we heard of in chapter 1. He's a new guy, right? But nine years has passed since then, and now we see this guy, Haman, being exalted, right? And many think it's because of flattery and things like that. But uh, all it says is that he's a son of a guy named Hamadatha, and that he's an Agagite. An Agagite. Now, some take this to mean that he was a Midianite, right? The Midianites were mortal enemies of the Jews. Some eight or 900 years before this, the Midianites had committed an unprovoked surprise attack on the Israelites as they came out of Egypt. And then a few hundred years later, we see in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 15 that King Saul of Israel attacked these Amalekites in retaliation, in retribution. And the Lord had tasked him with completely wiping them out. But he spared, King Saul spared Agag, the Amalekite king. And so since this Agag is the only one uh, Agag mentioned in the Bible, there's a number of people who have speculated and assumed that Haman... Oh, now you're losing an argument. That Haman is a descendant of this Agag. Now, um, this is an appealing idea because it works well with the story, right? An ancient rivalry uh, would really explain the intense hatred towards Mordecai and Mordecai's refusal to bow. And, uh, and so a straight correlation line could be drawn from Agag to Haman and then from Saul to Mordecai as well. And where Saul failed to defeat Agag, then Mordecai would succeed, thus bringing a final end to the Amalekites, right? Now, it's all very poetic, and it's, but it's probably not the case. And, and um, for a couple of reasons. First, the Amalekites didn't even exist as a people during this time. And the way people rose to power was usually first by being a prince of a certain people group. And so it's not likely that a descendant of an ancient people who had been wiped out 600 years before would have a way of gaining access to the king. But even more importantly, as you look at 1 Samuel chapter 15, there were probably no descendants from this King Agag who survived, right? Um, in the account in 1 Samuel, it says that first everyone was killed except for Agag. But then as you read a little bit further, it says that Samuel had Agag executed as well. So it looks like there's really no descendants or no people left here for Haman to be descended from, right? Um, and so the second idea, and probably the more likely one, comes from an archaeological discovery. It's been discovered that one of these 127 provinces of the Persian Empire was called Agag. And so when it says that he was an Agagite, it most likely means that he was a prince of that province. And so somehow he gained favor of the king, and Xerxes elevated him to a position above all the other advisors. And so basically he's what we would call the prime minister, or the vizier of the kingdom. He's second only to King Xerxes. So going on in verse 2, it says, All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman. For the king had commanded this concerning him. And then it says this, and this is where the trouble starts, all right? But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. All right, now stop there for a second. First, why wouldn't Mordecai bow down to this guy and give him honor? Now, your first reaction, a knee-jerk reaction, might be, um, 
to jump to the conclusion that the Jewish people could not bow down before any human because it would violate the first or second commandment of the Ten Commandments. But that's not really accurate. There are several places in the scripture that show that Hebrews bowed down to show honor to their own kings, uh, including King David. Abraham bowed to show respect to the sons of Heth when he was buying a plot of land to buy Sarah. Joseph's brothers bowed down to him in Egypt, and Joseph let him, them do that. David even bowed to King Saul, who was an evil, uh, twisted man. And uh, so bowing to a person to show honor and respect was permissible for a Jewish person without violating the commandments. All right. So then what was the problem for Mordecai? Why not bow? Why not show him this honor? Well, the problem comes from the fact that Persian kings ascribed for themselves the position of deity. And they required people to bow down not only in honor, but also as an acknowledgement of this deity. And it's likely that in verse 2, when it says that the king commanded that everyone bow before Haman, that he was extending this idea of divinity to him. So to bow down to (laughs) you-know-who. The way you bow down, it would be the way you bow down to the king, right? So otherwise, there would have been no need to give this special command because bowing to people was just a matter of course. The way we shake hands today, they bowed to people, important people and even unimportant people. That's what they did. Um, So the idea that he commanded it suggests that the king was extending this idea of deity to Haman as well. And so, um, and this causes a problem for Mordecai. Oh, did you miss one? Oh, he extended it to Haman as well. All right. And this causes a problem for Mordecai. Right now, we're in the area where it is about honoring God. Right? The second commandment says, you shall not down, bow down to any false god or idol. And to bow down to someone who is claiming to be God and receiving that bowing as worship towards himself, okay, that would be breaking the second commandment. So Mordecai is being forced to choose between honoring God and honoring men, okay? And as you look at scriptures and history, even in our world today, you can see that from time to time, this is a problem presented to God's people. As you look at scripture, you can see that as Christian people, as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, we are to honor the duly enacted laws of our communities, right? We're not anarchists. We're not rabble-rousers, right? We, we, may, we may and should take advantage of our rights uh, and express our opinions on important issues of the day, but we're, we're not uh, promoting um, anarchy and destruction and all those types of things. We honor the just laws of our society. And at the same time, we honor God. We obey and honor God and live according to the Holy Spirit. And most of the time, there's no problem. There's no conflict between those two things most of the time. But from time to time, God's people are put in the position of having to choose one or the other. There are cases when it's not possible to do both. Think of the Hebrew midwives, right? The Pharaoh said, um, commanded them to kill all the Hebrew uh, male babies when they were born. Well, they couldn't honor the king and honor God at the same time. And they chose to honor God by letting the Hebrew male babies live as well. Think of Daniel in the lion's den, right? Uh, uh, he was honoring the king with all his life and promoting the king's interest. But the, all of a sudden, the order came down. You can't pray to anybody but this king, but this Persian king. Well, he couldn't do that. Put him in the situation. He has to choose between honoring 
the king and honoring God and the honored God. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're put in this situation. They honor the king. They serve the king. But all of a sudden, the command comes, you've got to bow down to this idol that the king has set up. And they said, king, we don't even need to be careful about how we need to talk to you about this. We can't do that, and we won't do that. And then the apostles, when they were commanded, don't speak in this name of Jesus any longer. They said, you Jews, I mean, uh, uh, we have to obey God rather than men. And even today around the world, Christians, and even here in America sometimes, are faced with these decisions. Christians around the world are arrested and persecuted for practicing their faith in many countries today. And in our own country, in the last dozen years or so, it seems to me there's been a startling increase in legal actions brought against Christians and, and Christian business people and small business owners who simply want to honor God with how they conduct um, their businesses by not participating in practices that violate his word. And sometimes these people, I don't know if you've noticed, they're portrayed by, in the media as being mean or angry or, or spiteful or hateful. But when you look at it, you find out that these people, they're not yelling, they're not angry, they're not shaking their fists at anybody. They just want to honor God with their lives. And so you can see that here in our story with Mordecai. Going on, it says, Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day, they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. You know, I've watched several different movies about Esther. Have any of you ever seen a movie uh, about the life of Esther? And I've noticed that most times when they depict these verses here, the way they do it is they kind of show Haman coming along, riding on a horse, and he's up on his high horse. Oh, yeah, okay. They show Haman riding along on a horse, and he's on his horse, and, uh, and everybody, uh, the people going before him saying, All bow before Haman! And everybody's bowing, except right along the side of the road, you see Mordecai standing there with his arms crossed like this, and he's kind of looking at him with an icy stare like this. Have any of you seen this? Am I the only one, right? And he's just like standing there like this, and uh, Mordecai sees him, and there's this icy staring contest that goes on for a while, and this goes on for several days, and you get the feeling like, um, like, like Mordecai's about to burst out and says, hey, what do you think of me now? You know, I'm still standing. What are you going to do about it? You know, that's kind of how it, it kind of comes across, and you know, that makes great theater. Right, that great makes great uh, screenplay, right? But uh, I'm afraid that's probably not what happened. So Mordecai wasn't looking; he wasn't looking or itching for a confrontation, right? Haman didn't even know it was happening until some people came and pointed it out to him. And it looks like Mordecai, though he wouldn't bow, I mean, he's not trying to make a scene of it. He wasn't at all in your face about it. He's not bowing. Uh, but he's also trying to be discreet about it. And, but nevertheless, some of these other officials, they notice it, right? And, uh, um, and so the first thing that happens is they begin to question him about it. Hey, why aren't you bowing? What's your problem? And it looks like for whatever reason, they want to get him to comply. They, they spoke to him day after day about it, but he refused. And you, know, and you could wish that eventually they'd just give up and just leave it alone, right? But that's not what happened. Verse 4, it says, Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So when they can't get Mordecai to comply, they go tell you-know-who about it. And have you noticed that it seems like 
more and more that, that those who hate the Bible and biblical standards of morality are not content simply to just ignore God in the Bible and live their lives, right? That more and more it seems like they're insisting that you, that people of faith, validate and participate with them. Am I the only one who's noticed that? It seems like more and more that type of thing is happening. And, and laws in the, are either proposed sometimes or even passed that seem intended to identify and punish those who would hold to biblical standards of morality if you don't participate with them in this immorality. Peter said it this way. They think it's strange that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But he went on to say, but they will have to give account to him is ready to judge the living and the dead. All right, and that's what's happening here in our story. They think it's Mordecai who's acting strange. They think Mordecai's morality needs to be exposed and dragged out into the light. They think Mordecai's morality needs to be punished. And, you know, the devil really hasn't changed his tactics in 6,000 years, has he? So they go to Haman... It's like, this, it's like they say, you know, hey, you know, next time this, this processional goes through the king's gates, look over in the corner. There's this guy, Mordecai, over there, and he, he may appear inconspicuous, but he's not bowing, and, uh, you know, it may look like he's doing something, but, but don't be fooled. Um, it, it's not that. It's that we found out he's Jewish, and that's why he won't bow to you, and so uh, um, maybe he thinks he's better than you. What are you going to do about it? I mean, these guys are first-rate tattletales, right? Tattletales are the worst. <laughs> Going on in verse 5, it says this, When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay... Yeah, okay. Good. Would not kneel down or pay him honor. He was enraged. All right? Insecure people are often enraged when they perceive that their authority is being challenged. And verse 6, it says, Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looks for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. And so this is one of a long history of attempts by evil people to eradicate the Jewish people from the face of the planet. It's evil. It's devil-inspired. He intends without reason and without cause and in peacetime to put a sword to every Jewish man, woman, elderly person, young boy and girl and baby and infant. He intends to fill the empire with innocent blood. You know, say, that's a lot of hate, isn't it? Can I tell you something? The devil hates God's people. Jesus said that the devil is a murderer and a liar, and he wants to kill God's faithful people. It began with Cain and Abel. And as you read the book of Revelation, you can see that it will persist up until the day that he is thrown into the lake of fire forever and forever. Here in verse 6 is an example of that. He wants to kill all God's people and cut off the line that would lead to, to the Messiah. And so in verses 7 through 15, we see how this plot develops. Verse 7, it says that in the first month, the purr, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month, and the lot fell on the 12th month, the month of Adar. And so it would be almost a year later. And that's providential as well. That's the hand of God as well. Because if the lot had fallen to just a few weeks later, it's unlikely that Mordecai and Esther could have taken any action. But here the lot falls 12 months later. 
So Haman then goes to the king to get permission for his plot. And he does this by lying about the Jewish people. He says they keep themselves separate. That is, he says they don't play well with others. Okay, then he says they don't obey the king's laws. Well, that's not true either. They're model citizens, really. And he says it's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. Well, that's not true either. The king's interests have not been harmed at all by the Jews and would not be harmed by tolerating them. The devil is a liar. There's no truth in him. Verse 9, he said, If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. Now, 10,000 talents, that's a lot. That's about 375 tons. That would be worth something over $200 million today. So what that tells me is Haman really wants this to be done. He's anticipating the king's question, like how much would this cost? And before the king can even object, he's, I've taken care of everything. Verses 10 and 11, he says, So the king took a signet ring from his finger, gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, he said, and do with the people as you please. Now notice two quick, quick things here. First, the king refers to them as the people. Notice that he's about to have an entire people group wiped out, and he hasn't even taken the time yet to learn who these people are. He just knows them as the people. That's really apathetic. It's beneath any ruler. And second, now Haman is referred to now as the enemy of the Jews. And it's almost like God gives him a new title, the enemy of the Jews. You know, throughout history, there have been people who have in one way or another taken this title, enemy of the Jews. I'm talking about rulers who have made it their purpose to try to annihilate the Jews. Pharaoh, Antiochus Epiphanes, the Romans, Hitler. Uh, and eventually the Bible describes a person in Revelation known as the Antichrist who will one day surround Jerusalem with the intent of destroying it and wiping out the Jewish people. Can I share something with you that God told Abraham some um, 4,000 years ago? He said, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So when you find yourself fighting against the Jewish people, you find yourself fighting against God. And what I, I don't mean here to say that Jewish people can do no wrong or that you know, the Jewish state can do no wrong or never make a wrong decision or that a Jewish person is not responsible or anything. I don't mean to say any of that. What I mean to say is that when you make yourself an enemy of the Jewish people on this level, on the level of wanting to wipe them out, you make yourself an enemy of God. And that's what Haman did here. Going on, verses 12 to 15, it describes how they followed through onto this plot and put it into action. They wrote the edict out. Couriers carried it to all 127 provinces um, and all the governors. And then after all of this, it says at the end of this verse, verse 15, the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Well, I'll bet it was, right? I mean, think about it. The Jews weren't in revolt at this time. They weren't causing any problems. A lot of people probably felt, you know, I work with a Jewish guy. He seems fine to me. A lot of people thought, you know, my kids play with these Jewish kids. They don't seem like any problem. The city is bewildered because it doesn't seem to be any sense or cause for this decree. 
But just the same, there's a conspiracy afoot to kill all the Jews. Now, um, before we move on, one more observation about Haman. All right, it says Proverbs 16. Yeah, there you go. He's everything that God detests. Look at Proverbs 16, verse 16 and 19. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Haman was prideful, lied with a false witness about the Jews, wanted to shed innocent blood, devised wicked schemes to accomplish this, rushed into evil at the slightest provocation, stirred up conflict. I mean, there it is. Haman is the personification of everything that is detestable to God. And it's revealed openly in this conspiracy. All right, so moving on now. We come to chapter 4. The people are bewildered and confused. The Jewish people are not only confused, but they're also filled with consternation. Verse 1 says, When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. I mean, wouldn't you? I mean, maybe you wouldn't go out in the city, walking down the street, wailing and all that, but I'm sure you'd take to Facebook and Twitter, right? Fill up your Facebook wall and bitter tweets and all of that with exactly how you felt about all this. Going on, verse 2 and 3, but he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping and wailing, many laying sackcloth and ashes. All right, so the fasting's already started. And then going on in the next verses, uh, verse 4, looks like Esther has no idea what's going on, all right? It says, when Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth. But he would not accept them. Okay, so she hears he's walking about, and she's concerned, and he's not attending to his job responsibilities, and she kind of really misreads this situation, right? She, she sends him clothes. I mean, really? I mean, someone's wailing and mourning, and your answer is, here, put on some better clothes. It'll cheer you up. I know for some of you like that, you've got to go shopping, right? Cheer you up. Get a new set of clothes, right? You know, I mean, did you really think that Mordecai's problem was that he had run out of good clothes to wear? But when that didn't work, verse 5, it says, Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to a tender, he, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai. I mean, she's really secluded in this harem. She doesn't know what's going on. Verse 6, So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact mo- amount of money Haman had promised to pay. In, oh, yeah. Money and Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and explain it to her. Okay, so probably Mordecai is just hanging out by the king's gate in the hopes of getting Esther's attention. Remember, he can't contact her directly. And it works. Esther sends his attendants. Mordecai shares all the gory details and the exact text so that nothing can be misunderstood. And then says this, and he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence and beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Now, this is a pivotal verse. It begins to move us from a state of confusion and consternation to a state of confidence. And as we look at this in the following verses, I want you to notice that it does not happen immediately. It's it's not automatic. It's a process. It's a process for Mordecai and Esther, and it's a process for us as well. When you face a crisis, an unexpected challenge, a disaster, uh, persecutions, or anything like that, you go through a process. It usually begins with confusion and 
consternation. You ask God why, and, you, and maybe you mourn a bit. You plead with God. You pray, God, what's going on here, right? But eventually, your choices become clear, right? And your course of action becomes clearer. And so here, after all this confusion, Mordecai has settled on a course of action, and it involves Esther. Don't you love it when someone else has settled on a course of action, and it involves you? Right? And you're like, whoa, wait a minute. Uh, I haven't processed this yet. All right, so um, he says, go into the king's presence and beg for mercy and plead with him for her people, right? And that's easy for Mordecai to say. I mean, he's not the one who has to go face the king and look Haman in the eye, right? He's not the one who might be executed five minutes after entering the throne room. So she sends word back to Mordecai. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. All right, she's saying, you know what, Mordecai, um, I might not have the pull that you think I have. I might not have the influence that you hope that I have. She's saying it's not a light thing um, to, uh, to go to the king. It's a death penalty unless he extends that scepter. And she probably likely knows people who have experienced that. So it's serious. And she adds, but 30 days have passed since I was called to go uh, to the king. So she's not sure about her standing with the king. She's not sure if she has that type of influence with him uh, anymore, if she ever had it at all. I mean, think about it from Esther's viewpoint. It's been nine years of marriage, and for 30 days the king hasn't shown up any interest in her at all. And who knows how long before that. I mean, maybe things have cooled down. Maybe he's just not that into her anymore. At the very least, for whatever reason, he's been emotionally unavailable to her. Some of you know what that's like, right? Emotionally unavailable. And so she does not yet have confidence in this plan. She's, she hasn't bought into this court of action, but when she sent this response back to Mordecai, he sends this answer back to her, verse 13. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. All right, so clearly Mordecai has moved past the confusion stage, right? To the confidence stage. In his mind, this is exactly why God rose Esther up to be queen. It's obvious to him. But she needs some convincing. I mean, she's naturally struggling with this, and Mordecai understands this, and so he sends words to strengthen her and to encourage her and to help her to a place of confidence in God's unseen hand working behind the scenes. Oh, and so he sends these words to encourage her. And he says two important things that she should weigh carefully. First, he reminds her that she also is Jewish. So this edict would apply to her. And so what difference does it make if she dies several months from now, along with all the other Jews, or if she dies now? And here's the implication. You can wait a few months for a certain death, or you can take some action now, and you don't know what the outcome's going to be, but it could result in death, like you're saying, or it could result in the deliverance of all your people. And then the second thing is that he assures her that deliverance for the Jews is coming. It's coming from somewhere. The only question is, is she going to be a part of it? Say, can I tell you something? Eventually, the kingdom of God is coming. It's going to be manifest. 
It right now is the invisible kingdom of God, the rulership of Jesus on the hearts of believers. But eventually, the visible kingdom of God is coming when Jesus returns, and it will be manifest. The only question is, will you be a part of it? And that was Esther's question today. Will she be a part of this deliverance? Mordecai sharing his faith that God's going to do something. God is a plan. God's working behind the scenes. There's something, and there's something about sharing your faith that strengthens other people. Faith is something that is meant to be shared. Right? God doesn't have a whole bunch of Lone Ranger Christians. Ecclesiastes says it this way. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. The cord of three strands is not quickly broken. There's something about sharing faith that strengthens people. And I think that Mordecai knows that Esther is all by herself. She has had next to no contact with anyone Jewish now for nine years. She needs to be encouraged. She needs to have someone stand with her and speak words of faith to her. And finally, so he says, and who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. First, we remind her that she's Jewish, subject to whatever's going to happen, and that encourages her that deliverance is coming, and now he gives her purpose. What seems patently obvious to him is not obvious to her. Can I say that sometimes when people are going through stuff, difficult situations, crises, and all of that type of thing, you know, sometimes what's patently obvious to the outsider, to you looking in, just is not patently obvious to the one who's in the middle of all that stuff, in the middle of all that confusion. And they often need someone to just gently come alongside. Someone who's full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, full of the wisdom of God, to just be there for a little bit and speak God's truth until that person can kind of get their bearings and see, yeah, you know what? God does have a person here. And maybe eventually see what's patently obvious to you. And Esther needed that. And so Mordecai provides that. And, uh, and so she hears this and going on, verse 16, it says, Go, gather together all the Jews, her and Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So here now, it looks like Esther has finally been able to work through all the confusion and process it in her heart and mind. And now she's arrived at a place of confidence. She's going to take action. She knows what she has to do. But I want you to notice something important. She doesn't just waltz up right into the king right at that moment. She does something important first. She says, gather all. If I'm going to do this, I want God involved in this. Right? Go gather all of the Jews and fast. And um, though it doesn't specifically say it here in Jewish culture and in biblical culture, whenever there's fasting involved, there's prayer involved. Fasting is always supposed to be married with prayer because it's not just about denying yourself food. It's also about seeking God. All right, so what she's saying is you fast and pray and seek God, gather all of them together and fast and pray and seek God. And she says, I and my attendants will also do the same thing. We're going to fast and pray and, and seek God. And if I'm going to do this, she's saying, I want God's involvement with it. And I encourage you, whenever you're in a difficult situation, do not forget God's involvement. I mean, pray through Look at Jacob. When Jacob was in a really difficult situation, right, it says he stopped for a minute and he prayed a prayer that lasted 30 seconds and then went on with all his frantic stuff, all right? I'm saying don't pray a 30-second prayer because it wasn't until Jacob, God got alone with Jacob overnight 
that Jacob finally uh, came to a place of confidence in his heart. Sometimes you need to pray through. If you pray a little bit and you still have anxiety, keep praying. Get the word out some more and keep praying till that peace of God that passes understanding um, comes to you. Amen. Well, that wasn't all in the notes, but um, I believe the Holy Spirit has that for someone this morning. The great apostle Paul in his letters asked people to pray for him all the time. And Jesus, on the night um, he was going to be crucified, asked for his two, three closest friends to come and pray with him. Right? And if Jesus wanted people to pray with him, then we need to have people pray with us. Fast and pray, she says. And finally she says, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Eventually, you have to make a decision. Eventually, it's time to stop praying and take action. Action that's inspired by trust and faith in God working behind the scenes. You know, if it's possible. As much as I just said, pray and pray and pray through and do that. Sometimes it's possible to get to the place where God has shown you what to do and you keep praying. And that can actually be a lack of faith. Because your next faith thing is to take action. To take the action that, um, that God has asked you to do. There's a time for being on your face before God, and there's a time for getting up and doing God's business in faith and walking in trust. And usually that requires a threshold of, this, of decision beyond which there is no going back, and which you don't know what the outcome is going to be. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that next week as we begin to look at chapters 5, 6, and maybe 7. But for now, as we get ready to conclude, I have just one simple observation that I want you to take away with you and apply to your lives right where you are, right in the middle of this crisis that we're in. You know, two weeks ago we observed that God is in control, right? Last week we observed that God is way ahead of the game. This week I want you to see that God is with you on the journey. All right? I want to say that again. God is with you on the journey. Amen. It may be hard sometimes, especially if you're suffering one way or another, or you're in some state of confusion, you wonder where God is, what he's doing, what does he see, does he even care, or anything like that. But eventually, God is going to help you to see. If you persist and, and, and you keep um, leaning into him, leaning into faith, leaning into trust, God is going to make you see clearly, and you'll find out that God is in control, he's way ahead of the game, and he's with you on the journey. So here's what I'd like to do, and here's like how I'd like to close this service. Um, many of you, you know that old hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. All right, well, I would like us to uh, um, close this service by singing that hymn together. And I'm going to go over the piano here. And um, uh, as our statement of faith, that we, we can sing that uh, great is God's faithfulness. Amen? I mean, will you all stand with me? Amen, amen, amen. Hallelujah. Amen.